Hello, I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The, the Nonprofit, Nonprofit Reframe. Together, Nia and I have over 30 years of nonprofit experience. We've worked the program side, the business side, and everything in between. We are reframing the nonprofit experience by challenging the status quo because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday. As always, today is Monday, July 27, that we are recording this. How was your weekend, Brittany? You know, I had a great weekend. Thank you for asking. Um, We escaped to the mountains. Uh, Somebody in our family has a cabin. We went up there, and it wasn't all R&R, though it was nice to get away from the heat. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, it was a working weekend. We did a lot of uh, check some stuff off the to-do list to tidy up the cabin. So it felt good. Good. What about you? Uh, Well, my husband was back from uh, a fire assignment. And so he was on official R&R. He's required to have two days off between assignments, which was lovely. But he got home and literally within hours of him getting home... I was dealing with an emergency for an organization I'm involved with, and that just kind of like swallowed up so uh. much of our time together. And he's so wonderfully understanding, and uh, I think actually was kind of relieved to have time to just like putz in the yard without me being around. Uh, but it was a bit of a disappointment that we couldn't spend two days in, in blissful love before he goes back to work. <laughs> That's federally mandated R&R, right? I don't know if it's federal, but there is a mandate. State mandate. And of course there are exceptions and lots of ways you can get around it. But generally speaking, yes, it's, it's two days after a full roll, which is a a full assignment. Nice. And he brought me peaches. Oh, nice. Yeah. I saw that. Palisade peaches are making their way to farm stands. Yeah. Definitely not as big as most years, but I know they had a, a late freeze that has really hurt the crop. So it, it was so kind of him to bring me some peaches from the Western Slope. I love peach season. It's the little yeah. things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially right now, right? Just hold on to those little things. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, what are we talking about today? Well, I was going to ask you because you had the idea for the episode, <laughs> which I appreciate because my brain is a little fried given all of the things I've been handling and dealing with. So I would love for you to, to give us the overview and I'll just plug in where you need me. <laughs> nice. Well, my idea today is not a novel one. Uh, we talk about this all the time, all the time, but I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about it. <laughs> Obviously. I wanted to talk about turnover in our industry, particularly with fundraisers. Mm, Yes, that's a good one. So development directors, uh, development managers, whatnot. And the reason that this is coming about for me is because I had the pleasure last week of being a panelist hearing some capstone projects from a certificate program called ILD, Institute for Leaders in Development, which is phenomenal. It's at DU. Um, 
that I am a graduate of. So I did that. I graduated in 2016, and they asked me this year to be a panelist. Look at you, hot shit. I know. I know. I felt really slick. Really (laughs) slick. And it was just a lot of fun. It was great to hear what these students came up with for their projects. And they're all confidential, so I'm not going to speak to any particular person or where they work. or. But it's really just a theme that I saw playing out. And I should say that the reason they started this program at DU was as a – it was a way – it was a bunch of um, – fundraisers, professional fundraisers that got together and came up with the idea of starting this program as a way to combat their turnover. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So can we put together a year-long program that allows people to network within the sector, um, where we have uh, seminars monthly on different aspects of fundraising, and provide these new fundraisers, I put new in quotes because it, it really, you don't have to be brand new to be a part of it, but kind of emerging leaders in philanthropy and fundraising help add tools to their toolbox so that they can be more successful and um, ultimately stay in the field. <laughs> Seems like a worthy endeavor. <laughs> right? So... I mean, what is the turnover rate? Is it 16 to 18 months? Yeah. Is that still accurate? Yep. Uh, We'll see uh, if we get new numbers at the end of this year, because I have a feeling it'll go up pretty significantly. Right. So compounded on top of all of this is now COVID Mm -hmm. um, and all the things that we've spoken to as far as reduced resources and, you know, nonprofits having to scale back. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, there was just an article, if I had been, like, with it this morning, I would have pulled it up so I could actually reference (laughs) the pertinent material, but I will find it and put it in the show notes. But it was talking about how, like, as the current crisis has progressed, we are now to the stage where fundraisers are getting laid off. Like, I think kind of the conventional wisdom, which makes sense, is if we're having revenue issues, we shouldn't lay off the people who are bringing in revenue. But we've now gotten to this place where it's so much more advanced that bigger cuts are being required. So whether it's layoffs or furloughs, um, our fundraisers are now getting hit more than they had been in the past. You know, and how months. does that work? So then who is helping to bring in the revenue? It's landing on leadership? You know, I would assume. CEOs, EDs? Well, and if you think about how most... Again, the majority of nonprofits are really small, less than half a million in revenue. We said that last week. Um, Then, yeah, if if they're laying off fundraising staff, it's definitely going to the executive director, maybe the board who's wanting to step in. But it's uh, it's adding additional burden to folks who probably don't have a lot of capacity to handle that right now. Or experience in it. Potentially, yeah, for sure. And so that was one of the themes that, I was hearing through these projects where here you had a development staff member who, for all intents and purposes, at least when they're given their capstone, seemed (laughs) jazzed about their job and... (laughs) Yay, fundraising. (laughs) Yay. Um, And have energy and, you know, the capstone's all about finding, um, 
either a problem that you're dealing with or a question that you have or what is a program that you want to create and then building that out and mm -hmm. having the support in the program. You also have a mentor um, who can help you along the way. And then, like I said, access to a network so you can talk to other fundraisers at like-minded organizations and find out what they've done that's worked. It's a lot of work. And they put all this work together and then they don't have buy-in mm -hmm. from the people in their organization to make it happen. Yep. Yep. And I just see this bright light begin to dim and dim and dim. <laughs> well, since you can't share stories, I've got a very specific one I can share. So I was development director and my executive director sent me for a one-week intensive on social enterprise. So five whole days working on social enterprise, we had a very specific concept that I wanted to really build out. And I, at the end of that five days, I had a full business plan for how this rolls out, how it generates revenue for us, how it helps us further our mission. That was in 2013. Yeah. And nothing has happened. And I left the organization less than six months later. I just think it... Well, gosh, I mean, of course it clearly kills momentum. Right. Um, but it kills the spirit of the fundraiser. <laughs> and I don't understand. I, I, I mean, I know that it's probably more complicated than it seems. And every organization has their own internal strife that's happening. But if you, in all of these situations, they're lacking funding. They have a funding mm -hmm. gap that they're trying to cover. And here is a person who, that's their job. Their role is to um, increase your revenue streams. And they're saying, I have found a way to do that. And they're just getting cut off. Yep. You know. And I don't know, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today and just have mm -hmm. a conversation with you because that's what we do about... <laughs> is that the format of this? Yeah, oh. that is. That is. <laughs> um, that, what is it? Is it? Is it the fact... So in a lot of these circumstances of the people I was talking to, the executive directors are not fundraisers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they're usually program directors. They've come from the program yep. side and have been um, elevated to lead the company, you know, mm -hmm. or lead the organization. And yep. so they don't have the experience. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, again, so often with small nonprofits, that's what you have to have, right? You need somebody who can actually create programs. And so you're right. more likely to have an executive director with that kind of background. It's much less likely that you've got somebody brought in who has the business fundraising side of things at, at that size and scale. That's more likely later on in your organization's lifespan or development. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't know if it's a lack of, you know, we talk about cultural philanthropy yep. within an organization. And if that's the real linchpin of if we can, um, if we can create that early on and how to do that mm -hmm. so that you have that buy-in and that support from all, all aspects. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that buy-in piece is so critical, right? Like, let's again, let's reverse this thought experiment and say, okay, your program director comes in, has this new program, leadership is like, sure, go ahead and develop it. And then it comes time to implement and leadership is like, nah, we're not going to do that anymore. Right. Right? Like that, that just kills morale. And yet it's something that happens time and time and time again in fundraising. And I think part of that is, like fundraising so often can be like that bright, shiny object syndrome. What What is the opportunity I need to chase today? And for small organizations, it's hard to stay focused on, here's my strategy. Here's the bigger picture that's going to allow me to not get diverted <laughs> by all of these little things that might come about. But you also have the added layer, at least I, clearly this is fully my perspective. You have that added layer of the board engagement. In most mm-hmm. other nonprofit positions, except for the executive director, you don't have that board engagement, which requires board buy-in. And getting boards to freaking fundraise is so goddamn hard. And so you've got have this Have you ever worked wall. with one that does? Yeah. Oh, of course. Um, and some very successfully. But that's more the exception than the rule. Yeah. And the rule is boards that are so hesitant that... Um, actually I was in a, I did a board retreat this weekend for a client, um, four and a half hours on zoom, might I say. Oh gosh. And nobody fell asleep. I am damn proud of that. (laughs) Well done. Well done. (laughs) But you know, the metrics that we use nowadays to, uh, (laughs) identify success. You didn't sleep until after you logged off. Good job. (laughs) That's funny. But of course, we were talking about fundraising as part of this, and um, it's a small organization where their executive director does have some good fundraising experience and is their chief fundraiser. And she was coming to them saying, I need more help. And they were saying, we need more documents, right? Like, we need more cases for support. We need more stats. And she did such a great job of being like, no, you don't. (laughs) That's not the thing that's holding you back. We need to address the thing that's holding you back from fundraising. But you can't keep making me just chase around more tools that are somehow going to be the thing that unlocks your fundraising abilities. Yep. Yep. Well, that's an interesting point that you bring up about board members because I was talking to an organization the other day that doesn't even have an executive director. Executive director. Wow, that didn't come out. Um, They have one part-time staff person. That's it. Oof. And it's the program director. Mm-hmm. How would you like that position? Mm-mm. No, thank you. To to be the program director, the development director, and the executive director all in one at a part-time. At a part-time. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I mean, right? We could have a whole nother episode about that. But she has a robust board. I mean, mm-hmm. in the sense that she has 10 board members, which I thought was pretty big for such a small organization. But all of the board members have a direct connection to the mission, okay, as mm-hmm. they should. But it's such a direct, such a direct connection that um, they are frequently not able to be effective in their board role because they're so caught up <laughs> dealing with people in crisis. I don't know how to say it because I want to give anonymity to this organization. But my point is, is that 
I think that's another pitfall, right? Of these really small organizations that are just getting started and it's like, okay, we're going to make up this board and we're going to make it up with people that have such a heart for our mission, but don't have the capacity of time, don't have the knowledge of how a nonprofit works, you know, not even to mention fundraising. But I mean, I don't, they don't really do much for her except for Yay with your programs. <laughs> yeah, I, I sat on a board of an early childhood center and I was the second non-parent to join the board. Yes, it's like that. Yeah, and so it's all parents and I'll never forget my first board meeting where, first off, they like barely acknowledged me. Like they clearly didn't have an official onboarding orientation process. So there was like this initial, oh, here's Nia. She's awesome. She should join our board. Now, Nia, you can watch us for the next three and a half fucking hours. Shut up. And all of it was because they were so deeply embedded in the programs and so committed, obviously. I mean, there were parents of kids in our program that all they wanted to do was talk about operations. So right. almost my entire tenure there was pulling them out of that and also trying to get non additional non-parents to join the board because... Like, how do you make decisions when so many of your board members are so impacted? Like, we got to the point where when we would decide tuition, only three of us didn't have to recuse ourselves from that final decision. Right, right. <laughs> it doesn't right. make sense. Well, and I did, I was in that position too. I was the development director at a private school and it was the same thing. I mean, the board was completely made up of parents. I mean, our, the saving grace for me in that position is that those parents actually had capacity to give. Right. Um, but if you're in an organization or a school where that's not the case, then, and you're actually having to fundraise, which fundraising for a private school is not that easy. No. Mm-mm then i mean imagine how difficult that is and yeah. then and then pile on top of that not having buy in from the rest of the staff mm -hmm. i don't know yeah. i i mean so to circle this back around to what i was saying about this program that's supposed to support these emerging leaders mm -hmm. in fundraising I, I'm assuming the idea is that those leaders hopefully will stay into it. These emerging leaders will stay in the sector and then become leaders. Right. Which is where I think the real shift can happen. Mm -hmm. And that was one of my biggest takeaways was we need this kind of program for nonprofit management mm -hmm. for these CEOs and these EDs. Yeah. Because that's where it's getting bottlenecked. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It actually, um, it makes me think I, I did a training with a client last week. Um, they were doing their board or sorry, not their board, their staff retreat. Um, and they really wanted to help deepen the connection between program staff and development staff. So probably about a year ago, I had done one publicly, one of our local community foundations sponsored it. Um, and they had a couple of staff come and attend it and went back and they're like, oh my gosh, this is the conversation we need to have. So we finally got to have that conversation. Of course, it was scheduled, COVID, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, but it first off, it was so great to just acknowledge that they were all willing to take time out of their staff retreat to have a conversation about fundraising, that uh -huh. they were willing to learn about it, 
and that then we were able to talk about how to strengthen those ties. Um, and I, I made the analogy like, okay, so you start your new job at your nonprofit. Probably all of you spent some time shadowing some of the program staff, working with some of the volunteers, seeing the impact of the programs. How many yep. of you sat down with the grant writer to understand what that looks like? Right? right? Like that, that doesn't happen. And so we have this this unequal understanding of each other's jobs, which means it's harder to support each other. And so part of the, the session was just overview. What is fundraising? What does it look like? Why is event fundraising different than like individual donor cultivation kind of fundraising? And then we got into, okay, how do we bridge this more effectively? And for them, we, we settled on kind of two big things that they wanted to do, which I so love. Um, part of it was infusing fundraising language throughout their volunteer processes. So from the moment of recruitment to vetting, to orientation, to training, to continuing ed, all the way to the exit interview. So Love that th there were all these opportunities. And I think, I, I think the transformation happened when they realized that the program staff realized that fundraising is another opportunity for somebody to get involved. And so, you know, when you're sitting at an exit with a volunteer who says, I just don't have time to do this anymore. It's great to be able to say, well, you can still be involved in these other ways. And that felt really good for them to see like that connection. Sure. And, and then the other piece was more story sharing. Like I think, the the program staff again they understood why prog why stories were so effective in working with volunteers, and then we could so easily make the bridge of and they are for donors too. <laughs> That's right. why we need more story sharing. And so they created a whole process for how they're going to embed that in their staff meetings and have a repository. And it was just so great after ninety minutes to feel like these two sides of the organization had broken down some of those silos and were able to understand the fundraisers more, I feel like, and I'm, I'm sure I'm a little bit biased because of course I want to assume that everybody did all the amazing transformational work in my training, but I felt like the fundraisers looked lighter. Like there was a little less burden on their shoulders at the end of that because it was more of a shared responsibility than just them having to do it alone. Absolutely. Well, and because... I mean, how many times have you heard, oh gosh, you're a fundraiser? I would never want that job. I could never ask anybody for money. So you're kind of this, like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the right word for it. You're off in your corner doing your little thing. Oh, yeah. That, that the organization is relying on to keep the doors open. Totally. Right? I mean, it's fundamental to the success of the organization, mm -hmm. but nobody really wants to have anything to do with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Right. And just, you know, as I'm listening to these presentations and there's, it's just over and over, well, we have four different databases that we use and, oh. you know, nothing central. I mean, it's just all this stuff that you hear all the time. And so I'm, maybe I'm now becoming the cynic <laughs> of the nonprofit world. But, you know, we listened to this presentation and then all the panelists, the presenter left and all the panelists were kind of making comments afterwards. And it wasn't a comment on the presenter's information or how they did or their work. It was just on the sector in general. I just said, it's the same story over and over and over again. And it's so tiring. Yeah. 
I'm exhausted listening to these struggles that these poor fundraisers have that is not a new story. It's just same story, different organization. And that's why we get burnout. And that's why we leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So how do we so, fix it? <laughs> I don't know because we're so needed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we really are in, in each one of these stories is a, a flailing organization. Mm, yeah. I don't want to say failing. They're not failing, but they're flailing because they're trying to stay afloat. And now this is being compounded by COVID. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I know last time we, we talked about survival of the fittest in terms of nonprofits, but I feel like that also plays out with fundraisers, right? Like those that stay around through their entire career, like they, it's such a badge of honor. And, and rightfully so, right? You've got 10 years in fundraising. Holy shit. You have yeah. been through it. That is amazing. But we've got to figure out ways that it, it's more. That's where you get your unicorn horn, right? <laughs> the 10-year mark? Yes. Does it grow at 10 years? Is that when yours came in? I'm going to tell AFP that they should start sending that out. When people hit 10 years of membership, <laughs> send you a get horn. a unicorn. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. But I, I, it's such a big deal because it seems like fewer and fewer people hit that. Yeah. And so we also just have this like constant churn of fundraising information. Like I know you and I chatted offline about this, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago of like sometimes you go into an organization, you're talking about fundraising and so much of what they need is just help prioritizing. Be- 100%. Because like that bigger strategy of what fundraising looks like is so hard to discern for somebody who hasn't been in the field, right? Like the number of times I have conversations with clients about like, we, we're not going to go down the Amazon smile route today. Yes, sure. Set it up. <laughs> and that is not going to be a key part of our communication strategy, folks. So true. So true. Well, you just said it before that a lot of fundraising is about this shiny object and it's just kind of oh, I need to set up my Instagram, my TikTok, my whatever. I'm just constantly going to bring TikTok back into the conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and they get stuck down this rabbit hole of things that are not ultimately going to be productive or have the return on investment that they need. Right. Well, and let's be clear, like you and I know that because we've gone down those rabbit holes, Right. Yep. I, I was actually thinking, I was uh, driving through town the other day, um, and I saw a couple of new businesses pop up, and I was thinking, like, oh, gosh, you know what? As a baby fundraiser, I would have, like, looked them up online. I would have sent them letters, welcome to town, here's our organization. Like, I would have put in all of that work. And did I ever hear back from one of those new businesses? Never. Never. What a waste of time and energy. But every time it was like, oh gosh, what an opportunity. We, we got, we got a fresh one. <laughs> well, exactly. And I think that that's also, I know we're bouncing around here, but it just reminds me of boards. I mean, I've had so many board members that try to direct my focus and my priority by, we really need to do this. Cause I think that's another thing is that fundraising is also sometimes 
something that everybody thinks they know oh yeah the best thing to do it's so weird well i fundraised because i i sold chocolate bars for my high school band right so i i can now give input on your multi-million dollar fundraising plan right and so it's also having leadership and support that can say, oh, okay, wait a minute, we have our fundraising plan, they're going to stick to this, and, and can help kind of buffer that you should be doing this, you should be doing this, you should be doing this, you should be doing which just makes your head explode. You know, you're like, I'm one person. Because mm-hmm. in most of these organizations, if they're lucky to even have a fundraiser, they're a department of one. Right. Right. So how do I take this ginormous task list that'll never get finished and be able to prioritize it into what's going to have a quicker return than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's so, fundraising summed up right there. <laughs> yeah. Right. So this is my call to nonprofit leaders. I don't know if they're going to listen to this if they don't have a fundraising background. So I have no idea. They're listening. <laughs> They should be listening, A. And B, if you are a nonprofit leader and you do not have a development background or a fundraising background, that's okay. Support the person in your organization who was hired to do that job. Help create this culture of philanthropy in your organization so they do not feel like they are an island and an outcast because nobody wants to do their job. Nobody really understands what they do anyways help include them and everybody else into that mission of raising money. I think you summed it up right there, right? Like it, it really is about integration. I feel like that is one of the most critical pieces to reducing the, the turnover rate. If fundraisers feel like they're part of the bigger team, they've got support, the program staff are able to fill in all these pieces, you know, whether it, it, it could be as simple as sharing stories back from the program to the fundraisers so that they can use those, right? Like if they feel like they've got that kind of support and then they've got support from leadership in the board, we might actually be able to get, keep people around for more than a year and a half. And that's when you're really going to see it pay off. Exactly. I mean, how long does it take to develop a real relationship with a donor? 18 months, at Exactly. Least. And you've got this churn rate. So I think this, to add to your call, it's like there has to be a paradigm shift. If you are a chief executive in a nonprofit right now feeling this, right? Like you're, you're feeling like your, your fundraisers are turning over. Stop for a minute. Slow down. Figure out what you're going to do this time around when you hire that's going to be different. Because continuing to blame it on the fundraisers, clearly it's a bigger picture issue that has to be addressed. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that. And if you're a fundraiser who is nodding your head along with everything that we've been saying, which is probably everyone out there, um, hang in there. I really is develop that network. I was talking yeah. about this the other day with the person I was speaking to, who's a program director, who's the only staff member. And, you know, a lot of that too, this is such a pet peeve of mine of something that you should think that you think should take 10 minutes. I don't know. Like this happened to me with Amazon smile. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's We're just pulling it all together okay, I'm going to hook us up with Amazon Smile, whatever, or so I can get in and change our wish list. 
oh, I'm sorry, that was created by somebody that hasn't worked for the organization for three years. We no longer have access to their email. <laughs> so I can't reset the password. So I have to contact Amazon, but they have to verify that I actually work for the organization. So something that was on my list that was going to take 10 minutes tops took three days. Yep. Right? Oh my gosh, it uh, it just like infuriates me, right? But those are the types of things, I mean, I don't know if it would have helped in this situation, but other things that you've never done before and you realize they're more complicated than you thought, that if you have a network of colleagues that you can say, hey, has anybody done this before? Can you help walk me through it? Who can share that knowledge, I think is invaluable. I, I don't think it can be understated how important peer support is for fundraisers. Um, and I, I've i been part of some um, fundraising peer support groups before, and they're really challenging because of the turnover factor, right? Like you finally get a rapport going, you've got some trust within the group, and boom, half of them are gone. Yes. But again, if we can, if we can stick with it, those peer relationships are so critical um, if nothing else, then to to have somebody to call when you're like this, this is bullshit. Th- this shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be treated like this. We need those peer supports to get us through. And I, I think this is maybe a call out to foundations, people um, who do capacity building for the sector. We need structures that support those peer relationships as well. Yep. Yep. Do you remember that one development director who created yes. a, div- a DD list yes. for the county? And then she created a calendar where we all submitted our events so we could make sure that we weren't overlapping yes. events. And she did that for years and years and years and years and years. And then she left. And it was gone. It was gone. Mm-hmm. It was gone. And it's just poof. God, we all relied on it for so many years and it was such a great tool and resource. And then she left and it's never been, the ball hasn't been picked back up. Nobody's been able to do it or recreate it. Yeah. I found myself at some point last year, a client asking me, well, how do you know that you're like not competing with other events? I was like, oh, you go to so-and-so's calendar. Oh, that doesn't, you're just going to hope for the best. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's so true. It's so true. Because on top of all of this, as we've said a million times, we're all overloaded. So it's yeah. like one more thing. Oh, one, exactly. I can't do it. One more. I can't do it. Uh-uh. I can't do that one more thing. Nope. Can't. <laughs> well, I would also say that if you need that moral support, not the technical support, but the moral support... <laughs> You can reach out to us. That's what we're here for as well. That's why we're doing this show. And how can they reach us, Nia? They can email us, nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, if you haven't been following us on those, you should go check it out because there's some great childhood pictures of me and Brittany from last week. Oh, my gosh. In full-on perms. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And of course, 
if you have capacity, now is the time to give. Support those local nonprofits. Support those local fundraisers who <laughs> are trying so desperately to keep their programs running um, by giving and giving generously. Thanks, everybody. Bye. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com and Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.